0: Welcome to PIs Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Well, happy Thursday morning to you. It's Francie Kaler from P.I.'s Declassified, and I have here with me as my guest today, James Peet. We'll talk about that in a minute, but um, he's going to have some interesting facts and figures and uh, information to share with you. But as you know, before I talk about anything to do with my guests, I have to talk about the upcoming conferences, the one in New York, which is the um, 2018 Investigators Conference. It's going to be a big one. It's November 8th to the 11th. If you are interested in attending this conference, you can go to www.2018investigators.com And that will bring you up the website that will give you all the information you need about the speakers, the conference, the schedule, what's going on. It's going to be in downtown Manhattan. Very exciting. The second conference that I have to remind you of is the Colorado Conference. Colorado is one of my favorite places since <coughs> I'm from there, so I uh, certainly am attending uh, that conference September 13th through the 15th, the um, Private Investigators Conference in Breckenridge, Colorado. So that's my commercial for today, and I want to introduce you to James Pete. Hi, James. Hi, Francie. How are you doing today?
2: Hanging in there as usual busy as you can imagine.
1: Hanging in there. Now I noticed I can't even pronounce the name of the place you live in Washington State. How is it pronounced?
2: Enumclaw. It's now pronounced Enumclaw like a lot of people think.
1: Okay, Enumclaw. Enumclaw. Okay, and that looks that sounds like it must be out in the Boondock someplace.
2: Is it? Uh, we're we're in the same county as uh Seattle, Washington. It's just a um you know, it's just a small town sort of on the edges of this, you know, big city, if you will.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. So, it's it, you're not re- really out in the forest. Well, <laughs> technically
2: speaking, I am. I'm on top of a small mountain surrounded by thousands of acres of forest.
1: Oh, well, that's nice. Very nice. Okay. You know, James, I w- you have such an interesting background. You were a uh, uh, government dependent living all over the world.
2: Right. Yeah. Quite an interesting time growing up.
1: So was that your entire life?
2: Uh, well, that was from the ages of basically one until I graduated high school in Thailand. Um, I don't recommend living in areas that are having civil wars like Panama and Laos were while I was living there. Um, yeah. But yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> so you were living in Laos when they were having all that those problems.
2: Yeah, from 71 to 74 uh you know one of the wow. things we used to watch was the uh, F4 phantoms on their way up to uh north vietnam
1: wow wow and what did, what work did your parents do uh
2: my father was actually a uh, communication support officer with the us embassy uh state department mhm so his job was to basically fix and fix all the teletype machines and send the messages between the embassies and you know the uh, headquarters at state department in dc
1: so you, were you actually living at the embassy, or did you, were you living on the economy?
2: Uh, we were living on the economy. Um, no, it was rather interesting growing up as an embassy dependent or embassy kid, as we call ourselves, um, because most people are familiar with the you know, term military brat, which is you know somebody who grows up you know, with their father, usually, serving mm-hmm. in the military. And so when they live overseas, they usually live on military bases. Um, embassy kids didn't have that option. Um, the only person who ever lived on embassy property was generally the ambassador and his dependents or her dependents. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rest of us wound up just living all over the place.
1: Amazing. What a, what an amazing experience to grow up,
2: though. Well, I thought it was normal.
1: <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah, the thought oh, of
2: growing up in one location like my children have done is just kind of foreign to me, if you will.
1: Probably boring, I would
2: suspect <laughs> That's definitely different. Yeah.
1: Well, I just got back from a month in Kenya, and I can tell you that we are just so fortunate in this country to have what we have it's just uh, uh it's really an eye opener when you live in uh, other countries like what you've experienced
2: um, Well yeah in tune with that, we just had a guest here who uh, her daughter was adopted from uh, India, and as I pointed out, all of us had won life's lotto by either being born in America or being adopted and coming to America.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it really
2: is that much of a difference.
1: Uh, Absolutely. It's astonishing, really. We are so uh, ingrown and (laughs) don't really appreciate what we have here. We just don't. I agree. Well, so, okay, so let's talk about the kind of work you do, uh, James. So you are, are you a forensic accountant?
2: Well, that's one of the things I do. Technically speaking, I'm a fraud investigator. Uh, More specifically, I'm a certified fraud examiner, uh, which is a certification one earns through the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Um, Uh I don't know how informed your uh, readers or listeners are to the ACFE, but it's an organization. Well, as you can see, my phone is always busy, too. I can't expect this throughout the conversation. I'm just going to ignore it. But the ACFE is an organization comprising, I want to say, over 80,000 people now of uh, fraud examiners, people who um, not only investigate fraud, uh, but help prevent fraud and help set up fraud prevention programs. Mm-hmm. And to become a member, um, anybody can join the ACFE, but to become a certified fraud examiner um, requires having at least two years of experience in the field, um, getting three letters of um, attestation to your character, uh, saying, yes, this person is a nice person, or okay. more likely a, <laughs> a good person, which is a little Hopefully. different than nice. Yeah. I mean, as we all know, Ted Bundy was nice, but he was not a nice person. <laughs> That's true. Um <laughs> so, and let's see, uh, you have to also uh, take, um, well, you have to have a bachelor's degree uh, minimum, and it matters not what kind of uh, degree you have, although generally speaking, I'd say a lot of uh, CFEs usually have either an accounting or a criminal justice degree, uh, okay. of which I have neither. Um, and
1: you, you have a Ph.D., though. What's your Ph.D. in?
2: Believe it or not, it's in geography, and there's a funny story on that, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. Um, okay. But, to, you know, complete the whole thing on the CFE. Uh, you're also required to take uh, the uh, CFE exam, which is a four-part exam, uh, each part consisting of about 250 questions, at least when I took it in 2011. Mm-hmm. And uh, those parts relate to um, fraud prevention and investigation. Um, there's a part on the legal components, such as you have to understand things like You know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, and all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the... uh, Let's see, what... Sorry, it's been about seven years since I took the exam, so I don't have the full (laughs) record in front of me, unfortunately. Um, But there are two other parts. One in financial, which was actually, at the time, for me, the hardest, uh, because I didn't have an accounting background. Um, Let's see, and. Mostly investigation, I guess. Um, So, yeah, it's a four-part exam, uh, which if you study hard enough for it, anybody can pass it, in my opinion. Anybody with half a brain, that is. Um, And so once you actually um, pass the test and have submitted all the documentation showing that you are qualified to be a CFE, they will actually send you a very nice little certificate. I think the thing's bigger than my Ph.D. diploma.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny.
2: <laughs> it's definitely in a nicer frame, too.
1: <laughs> That's great. That's great. So uh, so is the, is the study for it fairly rigorous? Because I've heard um, people have a lot of trouble with uh, getting through this process for CFE's.
2: Oh, you're probably asking the wrong person. Um, I'm used to studying. I mean, let's face it, I spent most of my life actually in school in one form or another. You know, I don't know if you saw, I've actually attended 10 different colleges slash universities since yeah. graduating high school. Um, wow. and I mean, some of it's just stuff like going through law enforcement academies and getting college credit. Some of it is, oh, I want to take a welding class. So, you okay. know, I do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but the The way they set it up is you can actually study at home um using a computerized program, which really is beneficial um I didn't find it all that difficult- ex- except for of course the financial component at the time, which i'm still I was still under the mind that debit means you take out, which for those who are not familiar with accounting is not really the case
1: yeah right you know,
2: so but I've heard that it's not as difficult as the CPA exam is. Okay. But that helps.
1: That helps. Okay. But so, so anyhow,
2: uh, yeah, that's that's the role. And once you become a certified fraud examiner, you are entitled to put CFE after your initials.
1: So what does yeah. that qualify you to do, James, having a CFE?
2: Uh, the CFE actually shows that you are a bit of an expert in the field of fraud. And when... We're talking about fraud. We're talking about not just investigating fraud, but also in fraud prevention. So as a CFE, I can go into a company, uh, look at how they've got their controls set up, and revamp their process to actually uh, reduce the possibility of fraud. We can never eliminate fraud. I mean, let's, let's get that up front. You know, everything has a cost, and if the cost to prevent the fraud is, worth, is more than the cost of the fraud itself, Generally speaking, you don't initiate that kind of a process. Uh-huh. Um, I had one case that's actually going to court this month um, where I actually went in and looked at their controls and I said, you have zero control here and here's what you need to do. And they have enacted every one of those controls now, you know, uh-huh. such as having dual signatures on checks, um, not accepting cash for payments, uh, doing all things via credit or you know debit card, you know, and of course, making sure that the um, members of the association who were on the board actually received the bank statements so that they could review them on a monthly basis.
1: Interesting. You know, I'm am just thinking as you said that I'll I would venture to guess that the majority of small companies, and I'm talking about you know companies with maybe um, ten employees or less. So real small companies do not have any of those controls, <laughs> for the most part.
2: And for the most part, you'll see that in larger companies, too. Yeah. Wow. I mean, how many times do you hear about, um, you know, like a large shipping company in this, you know, up here in Washington State, because my specialty was on transportation. Uh, I've since evolved further. But, you know, we hear about these large shipping companies where the bookkeepers are stealing three, four $400,000 in the course mm-hmm. of a year. Because, mm-hmm. you know, and we're talking major, you know, companies. I think Maersk was one of the big ones that got ripped mm-hmm. off to the tune of about $350,000 by a bookkeeper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, you're right. That's that's very true. We're always hearing stories in the news about things like that. Uh, so it, it's pretty much a, a global issue.
2: Oh, very much so, yes. Matter yeah. of fact, the ACFE is global in nature. They, uh, you know, especially a lot of India ones happening.
1: So Especially what after do you
2: think, this nice little banking heist.
1: <laughs> right. Why do you think that is, James? Why do you think that uh, companies don't put uh, appropriate controls in
2: place? Is it uh, The main reason is cost, um, and the secondary reason is ignorance. Um, and let me go back on those. The first issue is cost. It be, costs money to actually implement. Um, I'm going to interrupt
1: um, you for a second. I'm sorry, James. I'm going to interrupt you for a second because this uh, I want to do this justice this segment and we need to take a quick break to let people know about our our sponsors
0: thank you the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com
2: PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com.
0: NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's one 472 5788 You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm
1: here with my guest, James Pete, and we're talking about uh, certified fraud examiners, forensic accounting, Broad, you know, kind of interesting topics like that. And I'm sorry, James, I interrupted you mid sentence. Please continue with what you're going to tell us about this.
2: Okay, steps. as you had asked, you know, why don't people, you know, small companies implement this? And as I pointed out, you know, the two factors are cost and ignorance. Um, the cost factor is, as I mentioned, it's a cost benefit ratio thing. The more money you spend on prevention you know, the greater your odds are of preventing the uh, fraud from taking place. But each thing costs more money, and small businesses, especially small businesses, don't have a lot of money or margin to actually be able to afford these. So that's one of the reasons they don't. For example, you know, requiring two signatures on a check Uh before mailing Uh it out. You know, having somebody actually go in and audit the books on a regular basis to actually verify that the bookkeeper is not sending out checks to, um, as we call them, ghost employees or ghost vendors. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that actually cost money. There are a few things that don't cost money, though, um, or cost very little. And One of them is the tone at the top, uh, which is a way of the boss setting the tone, saying, I will not tolerate fraud. If I catch you, you will go to jail. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, that actually works a lot. If the tone at the top, you know, especially in larger companies, is get what you can while you can, then you're going to see fraud happening. And for larger companies, and you know, that have board members, that's something to watch out for. What is the tone at the top? Is it win at all cost, or is mm-hmm. it do the right thing? You know, if uh-huh. it's a win at all cost type thing, I mean, we've seen that in WorldCom, um, Enron, all these big companies like that. Uh, you know, and people. You know, to put it bluntly, people are greedy, you know, and people are also lazy in that mm-hmm. they want to have as much as they want without working for it.
1: Well, so, and, and the thing you mentioned about tone at the top, I, you know, you see this all the time where the, maybe the owner or the president or whoever in charge uh, is violating company policy or doing whatever they want to do and it isn't something that an employee could do, but they get away with it. So then then the employees think they could do it as well.
2: That's exactly it. And that's what we talked about, the tone at the top. And if the tone at the top is one of quality ethics and a you-will-go-to-jail tone, mm-hmm. you're not going to see that kind of behavior, or you're actually going to see a greater reduction in it.
1: But yeah. you have to couple um, the will-go-to-jail issue with... Um, setting example as well.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, of course, you know, things we also recommend is, especially in a cash-intensive uh, industry, uh, which I'm uh, working in right now and trying to avoid going to jail-type thing, is uh, using um, cameras. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, uh, one of the biggest industries up here now, which generates a lot of revenue for the state of Washington, is the marijuana industry. right. And, and that's a very cash-intensive uh, industry. For the main fact is that even though uh, marijuana is legal at the state level, it is still a controlled substance at the federal level, which means banking is a little difficult because nobody wants to get involved in money laundering. Right. You know. And as a private investigator, for example, if I take a case, I have to make sure that I'm not deriving, I'm not getting my proceeds from money that was earned illegally. And if I am, that's called money laundering.
1: And how do you how do you determine that?
2: Well, this is where we uh, try to enact as many controls on our end as possible. Uh, first off, all money uh, that I get paid through a case like that is you know through an attorney. I do not take money directly from the client. Interesting. Uh, the second one is that the uh, client is required to swear out an affidavit stating that the money that they are providing me is not derived from illegal activity, and they could do. You know, there are many ways of actually getting the money uh, legally, such as taking out a home equity line of credit, borrowing from a friend, borrowing from a bank. Um, There are many ways of doing it. Now, so that's about the best that an attorney or a CPA or an investigator can actually do to reduce their possibility of having to worry about, you know, money laundering. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, so, getting back to the whole fraud issue on preventing it and why small businesses don't, you know, that's one way of actually reducing fraud is having video cameras at locations where cash is taking place. And the funny thing is you don't actually need to have real video cameras. You could put in a fake one. True. You know, remember the whole perception thing. I'm sure you have many surveillance and loss uh, prevention uh, people who have talked about this. So, so I won't go into that component of it. Um, but we have found one of the most effective ways of uh, preventing and capturing fraudsters um, is through the use of hotlines. Uh-huh. You know? True. So if you can set up a little anonymous tip line that somebody can call and say, hey, I think John is stealing from the company, you know, that actually works. And then,
1: so, and then an investigation is started and somebody comes, goes out and actually does, uh, follows through on that hotline message,
2: correct? Exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. And that's where either a CFE is brought in or um, a regular investigator could be brought in, you know, depending on what type of uh, theft is taking place. Uh, a police report can be filed. We usually recommend that a police report always be filed.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
2: You know that way. You know, number one, it protects the company from any potential lawsuits uh, by saying, "Look, we filed a you know we filed a complaint. We want this person prosecuted." Um, but the other issue is the whole ignorance component. Um, sorry, I keep using that word um a lot.
1: <laughs> that's okay. That's okay.
2: At least I'm not saying like you know. Well, <laughs> so <that's> true. <laughs> But the other issue uh, relates to ignorance and the fact that a lot of business owners are completely unaware of what steps to take. And even worse yet is they trust their employees.
1: Well, that's a big I,
2: I, one. I know that, that sounds oxymoronic. you know. But well, of course they trust their employees. They have to. They're making the money. We in the fraud industry have a saying, which is trust is not a control. That means mm-hmm. that you cannot trust people and use that trust as a means of preventing fraud. Because we have seen all too often, you know, many, many cases, the best friend is the one ripping somebody off.
1: Right. Well, there's another saying, too, trust but verify.
2: Trust but verify. I mean, I'll give you an example from a buddy of mine where he investigated a uh, dentist, you know. The office manager was just like the greatest person on earth. The dentist and his wife loved the office manager. Best friends, they came over. The office manager ripped the dentist off for about $2.4 million. Wow. Practically drove the dentist out of business.
1: Well, you know, the classic example of of uh, fraud uh, against your friends is Bernie Madoff.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, I wouldn't exactly say that he ripped off friends. He ripped off greedy investors. Yeah, well, Bernie but, Madoff should have been caught. But many of them were,
1: his, were family friends, too. Oh, okay. Well, I wouldn't. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Not what I would call friends, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But Bernie
2: Madoff was a classic case of this should have been caught long before. I mean, you don't have an investor with one office and one computer not hooked up to anything. Nobody investigated Bernie in advance. You know, none of his potential investors looked at him. They all just saw these returns and said, I'm in.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. Classic case. Yeah. So,
1: well, anyhow, that, yeah.
2: that's part of it. As, uh, and we like to tell people, you know, don't trust anybody, you know, or to use the words of Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're hiring somebody, verify that they are who they say they are. Always do a background investigation to the extent, uh, you know, possible with the cost factored. Um, somebody who's going to be controlling your money, you want to have a little bit more due diligence done than somebody who's going to be, you know, just the front end cashier. Yeah, when I say controlling the money, I'm talking the bookkeeper, the accountant, the comptroller, you know, your finance director, the CFO, the CEO, anybody in the C-suite needs to have due diligence done on them.
1: Right, right. And, you know, unfortunately, the laws are changing dramatically I know. <laughs> to prevent a lot of that from happening. At least they are in California. And yeah, I'm sure they're, they're making it
2: harder and harder to prevent fraud.
1: Mm-hmm. So... And you deal mostly with Washington State?
2: Uh, pretty much mostly.
1: Yeah. I've so had some
2: international stuff.
1: Are there laws that prevent you from uh, doing a complete background on an employee in Washington?
2: That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that because I don't do background investigations.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know that's a huge struggle here. Um, Used to be that credit reports could be done pretty much wholesale on anybody that handled money, and that's been curtailed greatly in California. Um, criminal checks have been curtailed greatly. And you, you know, you talked about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Let's talk about that a little bit because um, I'm sure that you would tell people that anybody that does a background for employment is a consumer reporting agency, according to Mm. the Fair Credit Reporting Act.
2: Right, PLO and all those people.
1: Right, and so so anybody that... If you go to do a criminal records check on an employee, you're a consumer reporting agency. And it's it's oxymoron, because it doesn't sound like it should be the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but it is. And (coughs) therefore... um, you have rules that you have to go by, and some of those rules are changing quickly where uh, some crim- uh, you can only go back so many years, for example, regardless of what the person has done in their past. So it's a, it's a problem, and it's, and it's all about getting people to work, and I understand that. They want people to be able to work even if they have a criminal record, but mm-hmm. it becomes a huge problem for employers.
2: That is, and the question is, what can be done about it? I mean, the only thing we can do at this stage is really work with legislators to get them to understand that what they are doing is increasing the opportunity for theft and fraud um, and, and the question is, how do you develop a fine balance between somebody who has committed a crime but paid their debt to society versus somebody who stands mm-hmm. a high chance of recidivism? Mm-hmm. right, you know, and fraudsters uh typically stand a high chance of recidivism, you know That's especially right. if they're never caught. <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure, and and that's true, in probably the majority of cases. So, okay, so when you talk to a company, how do you convince them to spend the money they need to spend to provide the controls they need to have?
2: Well, usually it's not that hard for me because I'm usually brought in after the fact. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's real simple. I go in there and they say we were just you know we just lost twenty thousand dollars from this employee. And when I investigate, I'm like, no, you, finally, you lost $100,000 from this employee. They're like, how did this happen? Well, this is how it happened. How do we prevent it? And this is how you prevent it. <clears throat> I have tried outreach on numerous occasions. Uh, I give talks at local Chamber of Commerce's, the Rotary Clubs, and I explain to people, you know, flat out, if you run a business and you are not the only person in that business, you stand a chance of losing 5% of your business every year to fraud. And the question is, how are you going to prevent it? And I usually wind up giving several tips at the time, you know, tell people. You know, I don't know if you saw my articles in PI Magazine or in Fraud, uh, Mm -hmm. not Fraud Magazine, um, but uh, Marijuana Venture Magazine. Um, I'm basically telling people, this is how you can prevent fraud. You know, these are steps to take. And if they elect not to do it, then they elect the opportunity to have, you know, losses. Right.
1: Well, and yeah. your example your example of the marijuana companies is a prime example because there is volumes of cash coming in. It they they don't have a place to bank it. So, many of the marijuana establishments are putting them in, you know, storage sheds.
2: Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, there are some financial institutions that are willing to uh deal with, you know, legal marijuana uh producers and retailers. Are there? Okay. You just have to find them. Uh, I know here in Washington State we have one credit union um, that I'm aware of that does it. I don't know what they would have in California or Oregon or any other state that has, Mm -hmm. you know, Manage to legalize marijuana. Who knows? Maybe a bunch of people have decided we're just going to go up to Canada because Canada, the entire country, is now legalized it. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, and then that revolves into the whole issue of you know, okay, are we in the money laundering now? Because yes, they've earned it legally. No, they've earned it illegally. <laughs> you know, and anytime you're, of course, moving more than ten thousand dollars, you're you know, you're going to have a suspicious activity report generated. You know, and if you're moving more than $10,000 out of the country at a time, that creates problems. hmm You know, so once again, you're into the whole money laundering component of it.
1: Well, and from an employee standpoint, if you're seeing lots and lots of cash sort of come through a company, why not just take a little bit for yourself? Because they're not going to miss a little bit.
2: Well, that's the interesting thing is, first off, uh, marijuana stores don't pay a lot. I think most of them actually pay close to minimum wage. Mm. Okay. You know, who knows? Maybe it's the side benefits of working there that attracts, the, you know, people. I don't know. Um, but the fact is, yeah, if you're going to pay somebody minimum wage and then you're going to have tons of cash going across, you're going to have a problem. And right. that's, of course, where, you know, you you need to have good point-of-sale software in place. Uh, Green points in the marijuana industry is a really good one because that tracks everything. It tracks the, um, the sale, the discount, um, and who sold it? The bud tender, is they call them, instead of a bartender.
1: The bud tender. That's funny.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, And, of course, in the marijuana industry, you have certain days and certain dates that are, you're going to see increased sales. And if you don't, of course, you have a problem. Um, for example, Friday afternoons are usually a big one because everybody's getting ready for the weekend, as you know, Eddie Money sang. Um, and, of course, April 20th is a huge day for sales and the day before that.
1: April twentieth because of tax
2: taxes. No, four twenty.
1: Four twenty.
2: Four twenty is the uh, it's it's basically the marijuana date the marijuana number. Um, it, it's it's developed into this urban myth, if you will. You know, four twenty is the magical date or time or whatever for you know using marijuana, and it oh, all see, derives I, back yeah. to well, well I know the not funny story. About you know, about
0: marijuana, so.
2: <laughs> it, it relates to a bunch of people who decided to meet up at a, you know, like a high school playground or something like that, or a park in Marin County in the 1970s. they were like, "Okay, let's meet here at 420, so we can go find a stash of pot." And so it's involved into that. And nice. it's rather interesting is that some states like Colorado have removed uh, their highway signs, you know, for mile marker 420 because they got really? tired of having them stolen. So they have mile marker 419.9 and then 420.1. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's funny. I had no idea. I've never heard of this before. Well, of course, I haven't been exposed to marijuana that much, so that's why. That's funny.
2: Well, I, I've been exposed to it tangentially. Um, I've never used it. It's just that I was a speaker for law enforcement against prohibition for a decade and I've uh, been involved in dealing with you know fraud in the marijuana industry now for a couple of years. Oh, very good. Yeah,
1: for sure. We're going to take another break, James. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about what steps you would recommend uh, small businesses or even large businesses to take to control uh, their revenue. We'll be right back.
2: PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com.
0: C-A-L-I. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to f-r-a-n-c-i-e at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm talking to James
1: James Pete, who is a certified fraud examiner. And James, before we forget, why don't you tell people how to contact you in case they have questions about forensic accounting or certified fraud examination or anything along that line?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, my website is just simply peetassociates.com and that's P is in Paul, E is in Edward, E is in Edward, T is in Tom, associates.com. Uh, phone number is 360 825 2661, or I can actually be reached on my um, cell phone at 253-732-7106. Uh, direct email is jpete at com. Once again, that's J as in John, P as in Paul, E as in Edward, E as in Edward, t as in Tom, at Perfect.
1: Okay. So tell us, excuse me, I lost my voice there for a second. Tell us the steps that you uh, recommend to your clients. Your clientele about uh, how they control fraud
2: well the first step of course is to know your employees before and during and after the hiring process uh, you know to the extent possible do due diligence on your employees if that means you know being you know getting their approval to actually run the credit checks you can do that but um, all background checks, history, criminal history, if possible. Um, call the you know prior employers. you know, and the one question we typically recommend is just simply say, if this person applied for a job, would you hire them? Mm-hmm. You know, and if you get anything other than an equivocal yes, um, you may have a problem. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, the second step is once you bring them on board, uh, let them know the tone at the top that we don't tolerate fraud, never have, never will. You you know, if you elect to commit fraud, we elect to prosecute. You know, and have a fraud prevention policy in place that is written, that the employee reads, and that the employee signs and agrees to. You know, this could be something just as simple as I understand that if I steal from the company in any way, shape, or form, I will be prosecuted. You know, that's setting up the tone.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, James, that you have to actually tell people that it's not okay to steal.
2: Well, welcome (laughs) to our world. I mean, people have been stealing ever since, I mean, mean, just look at murder. Cain killed Abel. I mean, how many years ago was that? Yeah, exactly. So people are not fallible, or infallible, I should say.
1: Right, yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, once your employees are hired, get to know them on a personal level. Find out what's going on in their life. Because usually uh, most fraud is committed uh, because people have some sort of financial need that they can't discuss. Mm -hmm. And that financial need could be such as uh, medical bills that they need to pay. Um, For example, my wife and children were involved in a horrible accident where this four-and-a-half-foot-wide Douglas fir tree slammed down their car, almost killing them. Uh Wow. Um, yeah, and so my wife didn't come home for four months, and our medical bills just ramped up severely, you know. And had Lincoln's. I been one of those type of employees who worked for somebody um, uh-huh. and actually had control of money, you know, when you've got $30,000 worth of medical bills, you're like, yikes, how do I pay this? Right. You know, and mm-hmm. if nobody's talking about it, if nobody discusses it, you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. They may have a gambling habit, Uh <laughs> You know, common today is drugs. Uh, generally speaking, you know, a lot of people are on oxycodone or something like that. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be illicit drugs. Right. You know, so, you know, these are things to look at. You know, do they have a drinking problem? Um, another example is, are they having an affair? And, you know, those are not that difficult to hide, yeah. you know, as we know. Right. So... Knowing that, you know, your employees, what kind of problems they're going through uh, really helps mitigate a lot of the fraud just by saying, what can we do to help? You know, um, knowing that kind of a thing. Um, When your employees are working, uh, and this really applies to people who are handling money like your comptrollers, your CFOs, your uh, accountants, and your bookkeepers, make sure they take a vacation every year. You want to bring somebody in that's got fresh eyes. You know, and uh-huh. if that employee say, "Oh, I don't need to take a vacation," generally speaking, that's a red flag that says, "I don't need to take a vacation because I don't want you looking at what I'm doing."
1: Uh-huh.
2: You know, uh, another thing to look out for is somebody who is very controlling. No, 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 you don't need to do that. I will do that. Make sure it comes to me. You know, don't send that invoice over to them. Uh, I'll give it to them. That kind of a thing. So, you know, if employees are doing. Um, Activities like that, you, you want to really take a good, hard look at what they're doing, and you want to bring somebody in. Um, we recommend typically having at least a short fraud audit done annually. You know, you go in there, and all you do is you say, all right, let's take a look at the books real quick, and don't bring in a CPA, and don't bring in a... Um, Know, just a regular bookkeeper. Uh, most CPAs are ignorant when it comes to fraud. You know, and that's not a denigration on the uh, field. I I know many CPAs who are also CFEs, who are also CFFs, which is a designation uh, called Certified uh, Financial Forensics, which is somebody who can actually go in there and do forensic accounting and knows what they're doing and looking mm-hmm. for crime. You know, but we typically recommend that. You know, you bring in somebody who is trained in it, be it a forensic accountant or a CFE. Um, probably for small businesses, the biggest one is have your bank statement sent to your home. You want to go through your bank statement. You want to review that in depth every month and say, all right, what's not right here? Um, uh-uh. Other things to look out for is increase in business and, you know, either a main- maintenance or a decrease in sales. If business is up 30%, shouldn't profits? Right. So yeah. these are just you know many of the things. Um, other things we recommend is that if you have an uh, employee who comes in who is um, going to be handling finances, you get a fidelity bond on them. And a fidelity bond, for those who are unaware, is a form of insurance that we call bad employee insurance. It mm-hmm. will basically cover the cost of not only the loss caused by the employee, but also any attendant costs usually, such as the cost of an investigation. You know, and you know, in our field, when it comes into the accounting field, the cost of the investigation is typically greater than the cost of a regular PI investigation. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the going rate is for PIs nowadays, but I've seen them mm-hmm. as low as thirty-five and fifty dollars per hour. You it's know, way and, more than uh, that. It's way okay.
1: more than that, James.
2: <laughs> well, it also depends on where you are, too. Right. That's true. You know, so if you happen to be in a very small, you know, or in a state where you don't have a lot of things happening, you know, it uh, could be low, and in some states it could be higher, yeah, yeah. but when you're bringing in somebody like me, uh, I'm the, to give you an idea, not only do I have a Ph.D., which is in geography, interestingly enough, but I also have all the accounting classes and other classes necessary to sit for the CPA exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that differentiates me from a CPA is that I didn't bother to work under a CPA for a year, and I'm not going to take the test. Right. Yeah, that's it, so... so.
1: So a question: um, Say I have a company that I've had my employees are, say I have employees that have been with me three, five, 10 years, and mm-hmm. I have no, none of these controls in place, and now I've had an awakening I, oh my gosh, I really need to make a, I really need to make some changes. How do you do that with your present employees? How do you go through that process without alienating them and making them feel like you you distrust them?
2: Well, the first thing is you want to you know bring them in. You know, if it's a really small company, you want to do basically what I call a group huddle. You know, and just say, hey guys, you know, um, we're going to be making some changes here. You know, and be advised, I'm not picking on anybody. It's just that I've realized that I have opened myself up for potential of fraud, and toward that end, I'm going to be putting in controls. You know, um, so I want everybody on board to help me out with this. Uh, If you have any suggestions for any controls you would like to see, here's what we're going to be doing right now, and list out the controls. You'll have wanted to talk to a CFE or another fraud prevention person in advance, Mm -hmm. and you list Mm -hmm. out the controls, and then you can say, so we're going to be implementing this immediately, um, but before we do, I need everybody to sign this agreement that they've been here for this talk. They understand it, so we're all on board together. You know, the key thing is lead, don't tell, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. that's hard for some small business owners and, you know, especially some large business owners is rather than leading, they are demanding.
1: That's really good yeah. advice.
2: So, you know, if you have everybody on board, it makes it so much easier. But if you see people balking, you know, you, you may have a problem, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and especially true if you're not making as much money as you thought you were.
1: Right, right. So and you that, can that see how,
2: what,
1: you can definitely see how uh, people would feel threatened, though, if they've been doing a good job, for, or they think they've been doing a good job, and now that job is being challenged,
2: or the process exactly. that job and is being challenged. Exactly, and that's why you want to set it up as a you want input from them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me what you would do to prevent fraud in your position. Help me out here, because not everybody's going to stay with the company forever. We recognize that. You're going to have better opportunities. You're going to move on, maybe. You know, if you set it up in a positive manner, the response will be greater. Um, if you set it up in a positive manner and you still get some resistance from some people, mm, you might want to look closer at those people.
1: And how do you handle that pushback? Because it's going to happen,
2: regardless of you're Yeah, it is going to happen. Right? Well, you know... The final countdown is simply this. Who's the boss? Whose company is it? And just, you know, all you have to tell the employee is, look, this is my company. You know, I want to make sure that I'm not losing money because I can pass that on to you as an employee in a pay raise. And if you're going to fight me on this, then you're not really a part of my company, are you? You know, and at that point, they may elect to uh, leave. Some will leave undoubtedly because they don't want to get caught. Mm -hmm. um, And they will destroy the evidence. And that's another thing is if you're going to fire somebody, don't let them know that you're going to fire them. Or if they give two weeks' notice, you know, this is becoming more and more common with companies is that if they give two weeks' notice, they're basically shown the door right away.
1: Right, yeah.
2: And I'm not sure that I kind of like that policy, but I understand it because it's one way of preventing that employee from destroying any potential evidence. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and that's a big one. Um, As a matter of fact, when it comes to things, uh, you want to make sure that you have constant backups going on, uh, preferably that employees don't know about. Okay. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, This is a case I can talk openly about. Um, The city manager of a small town in eastern Washington uh, had recently been fired by the new mayor, and so he went on a shredding fest or as this executive assistant called it, a shred fest. Uh-huh. Uh, I and a couple of other people were brought in to investigate potential fraud of $28,000. Um, and in the initial meeting, they were telling us about, oh, yeah, he did this, he did that, and he deleted all his files on the computers. And I was like, you do realize these are all felonies. And they looked at us and they went, what? You know, Because in Washington State, destruction of documents, especially by a public official, you know mm-hmm. can be a felony, depending on what mm-hmm. type of document is destroyed mm-hmm. and in this case, what had happened was that the city manager called up the contractor who was responsible for managing the city 's i t and said hey i 'm just cleaning up my desk prior to leaving, and I need to have all these files deleted and the it one guy went, "Oh okay, and then when he hung up, he said, that sounds weird, so he actually made a backup copy of it called the uh, detective at the police department who immediately went over, got a search warrant, and seized the servers. And through the process, we discovered that this city manager had deleted over 9,000 emails and numerous documents. Um, and when we went to the prosecutor in Yakima County, they were like, yeah, so? And we were like, uh, we're talking 9,000 felony counts here. And that woke wow. them up. Wow. Um, we... <laughs> Yeah, so we eventually narrowed it down to 156 documents destroyed, a couple hundred that were stolen. Search warrant was served on the day the city manager had just gotten hired at a new city job as a city manager for another city. Uh, they then decided not to give him that job. Uh, and when it all came said and done, he pled uh, to an Alford plea, which is a base. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but it's
1: I am, a plea but I one- explain it?
2: Okay, it's a plea one takes that says, well, I'm not really guilty, but if I go to court, I'll be found guilty, which means that the preponderance of the evidence is so overwhelming that there was no doubt that that person committed the crime. So, you know, and that's what I'm saying. If you have the backups in place and the employees don't know about it and they leave, you at least have all of your data still and any potential evidence that might exist. Right. Right, and in this case, uh, this was actually only the third time in Washington state history that there was a felony conviction on document destruction, and my eyes still hurt from going through all those emails.
1: I'll bet they do. <laughs> I bet they do. Well, and that's your job is really labor intensive and a lot of reading. I know when we first talked this morning, you said you were reviewing RICO laws, so <sighs> that sounds horrible <laughs> to me. <laughs>
2: But. Well, you know, it's just law is law. You know, I, uh, one thing we didn't mention to your audience is the fact that I'm a former police officer, um, both city and, you know, as a federal park ranger. So right. I've gone through two law enforcement academies. I've had to learn all these different laws. As a PI, of course, as you know, you have to learn all the various laws, yeah. and in some cases even more than police. And when you're dealing with attorneys who are civil attorneys with criminal matters, you know, their criminal stuff is related only exclusively to what they learned in maybe one law class. Exactly right,
1: exactly you right. Know,
2: and so. Well,
1: James, it's been delightful talking to you. We're we're at the end of our hour, and uh, I would just want to uh, time go. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just want to recognize our great sponsors. Where you have an article, by the way. Uh, so, if you are interested in. Knowing further about James Pete, there is an article in PI Magazine, I think in the June 2018 issue. Uh, Is that right, James?
2: That's Um, on investigating fraud in the marijuana industry.
1: Okay, great. And uh, thanks to Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli of PI Magazine. Thank you, James, for sharing your knowledge with us. And thanks for listening, folks. It's PIs Declassifying. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for being with us today.